1: From KQED.
3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in an event that was widely anticipated amongst California political nerds, Governor Gavin Newsom announced on Friday his revised state budget proposal. And after years of good economic times, including last year's projected $97 billion surplus, Newsom now has to grapple with a budget deficit to the tune of nearly $32 billion. We'll talk about what the governor is proposing in his budget to close the gap, what he wants the state to invest in, and how the politics of it all may play out in the legislature. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. And formina Kim, California state budget deficit is now thirty one and a half billion dollars. That's what Governor Newsom announced Friday as he unveiled his May budget revision. We're going to talk about the climate, transportation and social service programs that will see no new funding increases under the governor's proposal and the ones that are getting a spending boost like flood protection and how it all might play out in the legislature before the budget approval deadline of June 15th. And we're going to talk to some experts here. Um, But before we get to them, I want to play a cut from Governor Newsom announcing this budget proposal on Friday and talking about why he is crafting it the way he is.
4: You don't have to be profligate to be progressive. And I, I think one of the worst things I've seen, I've seen this over my lifetime, is we tend to write checks we can't keep and then we let people down.
3: Jeremy White's here. He covers California politics for Politico. Hey, Jeremy.
4: Hey,
5: Marisa.
3: Also with us is Chris Haney, Executive Director of the California Budget and Policy Center. Chris, thanks for joining us.
6: Thanks for having me.
3: So, Jeremy, you were there Friday. You heard the governor saying words like we do things like we don't have to be profligate to be progressive, which is, I think, a newsome ism at this point. That oh, we yes. can We can name. But set the table for us. Like, if you've been paying attention, you know the volatility of California finances, but it does feel like a bit of whiplash, I think, even for those of us in the know, to go from a nearly $100 billion surplus a year ago to a $32 billion deficit. Why? Why does this happen?
5: Yeah, I think that uh, really extreme oscillation has even been hard to wrap your head around if you cover this stuff. As the governor really stressed on Friday, and has he has repeatedly over the years, California as a state has a very progressive tax structure, which means that we ask the wealthiest Californians to pay a ton, the wealthiest 1% of uh, income earners supply about half of the state's Mm -hmm. revenue. And so when the stock market is down, when interest rates are up, when we see these fluctuations in the economy, that has a really profound effect on California's budget. Newsom and other Democrats will make the point that that has also allowed us to stock away a lot of money in reserves for downtimes like this. Although I should note, Marisa, the governor is steadfast in not wanting to dip into that rainy day fund just yet, in part because while we're not uh, yet projecting recession, one could be on the horizon- and even a moderate recession, according to the state's forecasts, could mean $40 billion less in revenue, which, of course, is larger than the deficit we're already looking at. And so the message from the governor was we've done a good job preparing for this moment, but we need to stay cautious because essentially it could get worse.
3: Right. And, Chris, I know we are gonna we can talk about whether the governor is making the right approach and, and sort of playing this right. But I'm curious from your perspective, like – that progressive structure does lead to volatility, but it also means that the wealthiest pay the most in California. Um, and yet when the hits come, you know, it's often the poorest that, that take them. So, I mean, from your perspective, is the structure itself a problem or is it actually a good thing?
6: The, the tax structure itself is not a problem. It's, it's an issue that has to be managed. If you think about what the alternative would be, if we didn't have a progressive tax system, we would be asking people who earn less to pay more, which would be less fair, and Californians have consistently over the years expressed preferences for progressive tax structures. So it would be less fair, it would be out of whack with California voter preferences, and it would also produce even less revenue, which mean we would means we would have less ability to meet the needs of Californians who are trying to make ends meet in a very high cost of living state. So the volatility is a a thing we have to deal with that comes as a a side effect of having this progressive tax structure. Mm -hmm. And it just has to be managed. And that means you need to build up reserves. It it means that when you are in years of uh, really high revenue growth that lead to surpluses, that you are careful about using those funds for one-time purposes and not putting them all to ongoing. And there was a lot of that that happened over the last several years. Uh, so it's a man. It's you know it's a budget management issue. We shouldn't be change- We shouldn't look to change the tax structure because volatility can sometimes be hard.
3: Yeah. Well, Jeremy. I mean, to be fair, we're in a much better situation than we were a decade ago when we were facing huge deficits, right? I mean, the state has put into place some of the things Chris kind of alluded to there in terms of trying to smooth this out a little bit and give us a little bit of wiggle room when things do get tight.
5: Absolutely, and I would note. By way of example, one of the big reductions in this budget is about $6 billion less over the multi year period for climate change programs. Obviously, something environmentalists are not thrilled about. But there's still $48 billion budgeted for that area in the years ahead. So while, of course, there have been some reductions or some lack of increases in areas that folks would like, uh, this is still a budget that is approaching $300 billion, which is substantially larger than some of those budgets back in um, the much more challenging years. Although
3: it's slightly less than last year. Slightly less than last year. So it has shrunk a
5: little. But um, I don't think you can say we are back in the years of all-night budget negotiations, the governor vetoing the budget that type of thing, even as we're heading into a downtime.
3: Thank God. Uh, I was I was there for those days, Chris, sitting outside waiting for Arnold Schwarzenegger and the big five to come out. And, and you know, we should also mention part of this is that there is a majority budget vote now, not a two thirds required, which makes right. the negotiations easier. But you mentioned reserves, Chris. We have thirty seven billion dollars in reserves. By my terrible journalism math, that's more than the thirty two billion dollar deficit. So why is the governor not wanting to really touch those in large part? And uh, do you agree with that proposal?
6: You know, so the reason he doesn't want to touch the $37 billion, and he has a lot of support in the legislature for this, I think, is this uncertainty about what lies ahead for the economy that Jeremy mentioned. So right now, while a $32 billion deficit on a $300 billion budget sounds large, it's actually within the realm of manageable with the tools state leaders have put in place. And what the, what state leaders are worried about is that if there is an economic downturn around the quarter, as Jeremy was saying, the projection is that could easily result in another deficit of forty billion dollars, and so they want to leave those reserves in place for the event, you know, the eventuality that that might happen. And then, if it doesn't happen, then you know they'll still be in, in relatively good standing. I think I think that the challenge here is. In the meantime, the budget that's being put forward by the governor is just holding the line on decisions that have been made earlier. That's fine if you think everything's great in the state as is. If you think there are still needs around addressing homelessness challenges, addressing income inequality making sure that the folks who are usually most impacted in negative ways by economic downturns or can weather those periods of downturn, then there's still more that needs to be done. And so the question of not putting reserves on the table in some cautious way, not even looking at revenues, which the governor was very adamant about, um, you know, and just doing it through spending side solutions is maybe not the best approach. And and that's the issue we're raising in, in our own work on the May revision so far.
3: Right. Well, Senate Democrats did uh, roll out a proposal shortly before the governor put out his May revise, and they actually um, were proposing some changes to business taxes, uh, essentially pausing the net operating loss deduction, which lets businesses carry over losses to future years, um, and increasing the tax rate by about two percentage points on taxable corporate income above a certain amount. Um, Newsom rejected this out of hand, and we actually have him kind of making this case on Friday. Here he is answering a question of why he doesn't want to go with the Senate plan.
4: How do you raise taxes when you're enjoying $177 billion operating surplus over the last 24 months, and you just sent $18.1 billion tax rebates and look people in the eye? I don't think it's the right time. I don't think it's the right thing to do.
3: So, Jeremy, I mean, probably some business leaders breathing a sigh of relief there. What's your read on this? Like, why is Newsom digging in, and, and what's the argument on the other side?
5: The argument from Senate Democrats is that rather than uh, cut back on needed uh, programs or dip into that rainy day fund, we should be asking these wealthy corporations to pay more. The governor made an argument about keeping California competitive, about other states trying to lure businesses out of California, clearly something he's concerned about. I think it's important to remember that for as progressive as he is on social issues and other things, this governor is fundamentally a bit more of a a budget centrist going back to his time as mayor of San Francisco. The way I think about it, Marisa, when you have a budget deficit, there's kind of a three-legged stool for solving it. You can cut spending, you can raise taxes and get more revenue, or you can go into that rainy day fund. Clearly, the governor is focused primarily on that first leg. I think the message from him was very clear, we're not going to raise taxes, and I don't expect uh, that proposal from Senate
3: Democrats to go anywhere. Chris, just a few minutes before the break and we can get deeper into this. But to Jeremy's point, though, he's not totally it's not like he's proposing like a full 30 billion in cuts here, right? A lot of this is moving around money, unspent money, things we might have called smoke and mirrors back in the old days. I mean, do you think <laughs> that what he's proposing is solid, I guess, in that way?
6: Yeah, it's 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 solid. I mean, you know, as Jeremy was saying, one of the things he's doing is is taking large pots of funding that were allocated for one-time uses, often over multiple years. Um, you know, Big investments in climate change, big investments in infrastructure. Those were commitments that were made over the last couple of budget years. And he's basically now saying, look, we don't have as much money as we thought. We're facing a deficit, so I'm gonna shave those back a bit. That's a totally reasonable thing to do. Those, those investments were only made possible by the surplus years. So it makes sense to reduce them during deficit periods. Uh, the other thing he is doing is moving some money around. So, to get, you know, we usually, when we talk about the budget, talk about the general fund, which is like the state checking account. But there are a whole set of other special funds that have accumulated a lot of basically cash on hand in them that will eventually need to be used for the services that are intended. But the state in the short term can borrow some of those funds, pay them back at relatively low interest uh, and not do damage to those funds and kind of shore up some parts of the general funds. So it kind of seems like maybe a little, you know, like shifting around kind of thing. But it's a it's from a budget policy perspective, it's pretty practical. And the other thing he's doing is he's actually moving some things from being funded out of the state's checking account to being funded by bonds. All right. I'm prim- going to hold you yeah. there,
3: Chris, because I want to talk about that after the break. And we're going to talk about flood control, too. We are talking about Governor Gavin Newsom's May revision of his proposed budget. This is for the year beginning fiscal year beginning July 1. We're here with Jeremy White, who covers California politics for Politico, and Chris Haney, Executive Director of the California Budget and Policy Center, and we want to hear from you. How do you think California should address this nearly $32 billion deficit? The governor's declined to raise taxes or meaningfully dip into rainy day funds to address the shortfall. He wants to cut spending instead. Do you agree with this approach, or what are your general thoughts and questions? You can email us at forum at kqed.org, or find us on twitter facebook or instagram at kqed forum you can also give us a call now 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 we'd love to hear your thoughts Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. And for Mina Kim, we are here talking about Governor Gavin Newsom's May revision of his budget proposal. With us today is Chris Haney, Executive Director of the California, Poli- budget, blah, blah, California Budget and Policy Center, Excuse me, Jeremy White, who covers politics of California for Politico. And joining us now is Julie Rentner. She's president of River Partners. They're a nonprofit headquartered in Chico that works to restore healthy watersheds and create wildlife habitat in the Central Valley in Southern California. Julie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you are here because one thing the governor did not propose cutting, he actually added money into, is flood protection. And obviously we are in a very precarious situation right now, especially in the Central Valley with the... uh, all that, all that snow that fell up in this year, and um, what we're anticipating will be a, a big melt, I think is the, the, the line. Tell us what you're seeing on the ground in these communities and what the governor's uh, proposed you know, influx of cash could help with.
1: Absolutely. Just like we were describing before, the economic volatility of California's economy, we have incredible volatility in the precipitation that falls on California and its watersheds. And then you all know that water drives our economy here in California, many multi billion dollar industries. And so, um, what we're seeing this year is a wild whiplash from a historic drought just a few months ago into all of our reservoirs are full and we have enough snow in the Sierras to refill our reservoirs two, three, four times over as the big melt unfolds. And that represents significant uh, you know, risk of, of big flood damage to communities downstream of those reservoirs.
3: And so, in um, I know you know we, we've we've seen a lake <laughs> reappear in the Central Valley. Um, there's money in this budget to help raise the Corcoran uh, levy. What is it that is most needed immediately when we talk about state funding and kind of protecting communities? Because I I would assume some of this work is not something you can do overnight. It's going to take years and and maybe months and years and in, in some cases.
1: It's true. And so in this hard budget situation, you know, the the governor and the Natural Resources Agency and the state legislature have, all, legislature have all come together to really understand how we need to transition from investing in, you know, drought emergency response to now investing in flood emergency response. While that's all critical and needed, um, we also need to be keeping an eye on the resilience projects, the ones that take a little bit longer to, to conceive of and to deliver, but that are going to function as well in those dry times as they do in these wet times. And that's why this relatively small but really powerful um, obligation to floodplain reconnection in the San Joaquin Valley has remained. It's, it's one of those resiliency solutions that we invest in now. We get flood damage reduction, but we also get increased water storage and groundwater recharge that can then help us weather the next big drought that's coming yeah uh, this is really forward-thinking investment from from everybody in Sacramento that we're really excited about to address not just uh disaster response but also resilience for our changing climate
3: but there is, I mean this is almost 500 million in total we're talking about and there is disaster response right because we do know that the communities um, including in the Salinas Valley and the Central Valley are still really dealing with the immediate impacts. And we don't even fully know the impacts, right? We mentioned when the weather starts to warm up even more, um, we could see more flooding.
1: This is an historic moment in California flood management. I think there's more precipitation here in California and more snow that's about to melt off than any of us have seen in our lifetimes. And we don't know the magnitude of the damage as it's coming, right? We've we've seen a lot of damage already in the last four months, and we're probably going to see a lot more in the next few months. And this investment now in disaster response is, is what we can see that we need <laughs> right now from where we're sitting. But thankfully, for the last decade and a half, uh, California has been investing in flood Uh, planning flood emergency and flood response and flood management planning that identifies a much more significant investment in green infrastructure and gray infrastructure that's going to protect our existing communities and cities from flood damages but while also optimizing how much we can get out of those investments by way of uh, recharge and water storage as well as ecosystem enhancements and enhancements to recreational access for for communities in the valley
3: before i let you go um Julie Rentner, I'm curious. You know, I mentioned the Corcoran Levy, and part of the reason that this needs so much work is because the valley floor is actually subsiding. Right? We have we're pumping so much groundwater uh, over years and years that that the actual where the ground is has has sunk. Um, That seems like something that we need to protect against if we're going to put a bunch of money into, you know, building up these levees. Is that something the state is thinking and talking about? Groundwater is such a controversial issue. Um, So I know that this has been a tough one um, for state officials to deal with. Yes,
1: and the, and the budget has some language in it that's proposed to, I think, kind of ease some of the floodwater flood water diversion um, um, regulations and requirements to try to get more water into the ground, hopefully to alleviate future subsidence. There's not much we can do to rectify what's happened already. Uh, California didn't have, you know, a Groundwater Management Act until 2014, and we're still grappling with how to implement it appropriately. And I think that, um, you know, Emergencies like the one that we're in now kind of stimulate hasty uh, policy conversations that maybe are going to take a while to unfold. So yeah, we need to respond right now to keep that those subsided lands from flooding in this historic water year, um, and that might look like building some levees in places where we didn't think we needed them before. Uh, ultimately, it's going to take us a while, but we need to get at the 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 place in California water management where we're not extracting so much water from below the corker and clay that we make the land sink. Mm. And that takes some time and energy, but that's, you know, one of the solutions of being able to expand our flood corridors and let this flood water sink in slowly is to try to alleviate some of the unsustainable groundwater pumping um, or groundwater extraction by recharging it when water is abundant.
3: That is Julie Rentner. She's president of River Partners, a nonprofit that works to restore healthy watersheds in the Central Valley and Southern California. Julie, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. We are talking about Governor Gavin Newsom's May revision of his proposed budget that was unveiled Friday. I'm Marisa Lagos. And today for Mina Kim, uh, he sent that over to the legislature, who now has until June 15th to consider it and Maybe make some changes and approve it. Here with Jeremy White of Politico and Chris Haney of the California Budget and Policy Center. Jeremy, let's get down to brass tacks here. Like, what is we we, we said broadly the governor's thinking about you know proposing a lot of cuts, but he's not proposing you know big cuts to education. He wants to protect the expansion of health care to undocumented immigrants. Um, he says he's still committed to his housing and homeless. Stuff. What what is he cutting? I feel like we heard a lot of what he wasn't cutting on Friday.
5: So we talked about this a little before, Marisa. One of the big reductions in there is $6 billion, yes, uh, less across the multi-year for climate change programs. Curiously, a lot of environmental groups treated that as something of a win when that number came out because it was the same amount of reduction that the governor had proposed in January, Mm. even as that deficit has ballooned by almost $10 billion. So I think in that case, not getting worse, kind of counts as
3: as a victory but it feels weird right now for Newsom to be cutting climate programs we saw a huge special session and, and a bunch of or was it a special session a package he pushed at the end of last fiscal uh, or, or, or legislative session I mean what's his argument like and is it partly just that this is multi years of spending we're talking about so it's not really a hit in the short term?
5: The argument that I think you would hear the governor and his people make is that the $48 billion they're committed to is still a ton of money. I would note, Marisa, that uh, bill that the governor successfully, successfully pushed through to limit oil industry profits, he does want a few million bucks to fund that. But conversely- The governor pretty vehemently opposed uh, in 2022 a ballot initiative that would raise taxes on the wealthy to fund electric vehicle infrastructure, the budget now proposing to roll back some funding for that, which is the precise scenario that a lot of advocates for that initiative feared, which is that when times get bad, there's not as much money there for that. Um, Two areas that I would spotlight that I think you can clearly see from statements from legislative leaders are going to be areas of dispute with the administration one is that the Assembly Democrats really want to give child care providers a raise. This is an issue of personal importance to Speaker Anthony Rendon, who worked in uh, the child care space before entering the legislature. And there is a lot of concern out there about public transit systems like BART okay. facing these really dire fiscal times with ridership not recovering from the pandemic. Clearly, that is something else that the legislature is willing to sort of go to the mat with the governor to to try to get some money back there.
3: Absolutely. Uh, Chris, give me one second. I do want to just let our listeners know again um, that we are here to answer your questions or hear your comments about how the state should address its nearly $32 billion budget deficit. You can email us us at forum at kqed.org find us on twitter facebook or instagram we're at kqed forum or give us a call one 6786 that's eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. 6786 one listener writes, I've lived in the Bay Area all my 70 years of life. I've never made more than $100,000 a year, and I pay 25% income taxes. I'm tired of large corporations with multi-million-dollar profits having such huge tax brace. I get that we don't want these companies to leave California, but they do need to do more. Uh, Chris Haney, I believe your organization has called on the governor to, to consider these types of tax increases. Talked about what you're seeing in this budget in terms of cuts. Like what would the Senate's proposal, for example, guard against that the governor does want to slash next year?
6: So the the Senate proposal would also, for example, uh, put a couple of billion dollars into increasing reimbursement rates for child care providers like Jeremy was just discussing. So both the Senate and the Assembly have that as a priority. It would allow for some additional investment in affordable housing and homelessness treatment programs. Uh, it would allow some you know, continued expansion in some of the state safety net programs. So it's basically, a, the Senate program is basically saying, look, we can raise some re- revenues in a way that makes the tax code more fair, draws from large corporations who have done very well both before and after the pandemic, and who received a 14% tax break from the, President Trump's tax cuts Back in 2017, and they're basically saying, look, there is space in the state to raise some revenues to still make some investments rather than this just being a a sort of nothing new, hold the line kind of approach, which is what the governor has largely proposed in January and here again in May.
3: What about education, Chris? I actually have another cut here from from the governor talking about education investments. And, you know, he's made very clear that in both, you know, K-12 and, and higher education, he does want to hold the line. Here's how he framed it on Friday.
4: That's one of the most, I think, interesting and exciting things happening in education in America today. Not the book banning and the free speech uh, and the criminalization of free speech and criminalizing teachers and librarians in other states, but the work to transform the educational system and give real choice and voice to parents uh, and uh, make sure that we're providing support for professional development.
3: So, Chris, it's there's a little disconnect, I think, for a lot of folks on the ground right now, like we're seeing, you know, in Oakland this past week, there's been a teacher strike. San Francisco, where my kids are in school, has huge kind of structural issues on the local level. And yet, the state is really maintaining its investment in education. What is Newsom proposing here? What is he talking about there?
6: Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what all he was talking about <laughs> from a programmatic perspective. There, uh, I'm you know I will say yes, he's he's not he's he's not cutting in any major way in education generally. Like they're they're the state's maintaining its commitment to a build out of a universal transitional kindergarten program. The state's Funding for K through 12 schools is sort of on autopilot because of a constitutional formula that determines that funding level, and you know it goes down a little bit because the state's revenues have gone down. But the governor's not making cuts there, um, and he's maintaining five percent base increases for the University of California and California State University systems. So I, you know, I think he's largely trying to hold the line on investments made in education. Some of that happens by formula anyway. Um, so you know, i don't I don't think there's a lot of news about cuts necessarily. There are some programs, smaller things that maybe got some slight reductions. but but overall, the picture on education is still um, that he's trying to protect that space as much as possible.
3: And I know he did, I think, put some money in for dyslexia screenings as well. Jeremy, were you following that at all?
5: Yeah, that's right. Very interesting development because this is actually mandatory dyslexia screenings or something that the California Teachers Association, powerful statewide union, has been resistant to in the past, saying it would essentially – add uh, another task for teachers and take away from classroom instruction. But this is something that's personal to the governor. He's been pretty uh, forthright about his own struggles with dyslexia. And so um, that is something where uh, sometimes the power of the governor pushing for something can be enough to overcome some resistance, even from a fairly influential group like the CTA. So definitely an interesting little nugget in there that also tells us that sometimes a politician's background and biography Makes a difference in policy.
3: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we've seen this. Yeah, too, just with the way he talks about a lot of these programs involving kids, he has. Four count them, four of his own children. Um, another listener wants us to dig in on the transit funding issue. Uh, he writes, or she writes, with BART, Caltrain, and LA Metro all facing budget shortfalls in the hundreds of millions in the next couple of years. I'm curious if the new budget addresses plugging in some of these financial gaps. Uh, Chris Haney, not as much as, as folks would like to see in the public transit space, right?
6: Right, no, and I think it's a major source of contention for for the governor with state legislative leaders as they worked the budget over the next couple of weeks. As Jeremy was saying earlier, I knew this is one of those areas where the governor and the legislature had hammered out a multi-year deal to make major investments in transportation and transit infrastructure. And in January, the governor started to pull back on some of those transit investments. And I think there was heavy pushback from advocates and from legislative leadership. I think there was a lot of surprise that those transit investments weren't restored In this latest proposal Uh, and I think over the next couple weeks it's going to be. I think that's a place that they're going to have the hardest time hammering out a deal if for some reason, the governor is trying to. Hold the line on not spending more on transit because most of these state legislators are sitting in regions where they know their transit agencies have been very hard hit by the pandemic and are still not back in terms of usership and ridership.
3: But, Jeremy, I mean, could this in part be a negotiating tactic? Like, you know, if you're Gavin Newsom and his Department of Finance coming in, that folks like Scott Weiner have been, you know, Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco, ringing the alarm bell on this. You know that child care is a big priority. I mean, maybe you put in nothing because you know they're going to try to add it back.
5: Yes, certainly you never want to uh Start from a position where you can't negotiate. And so it's certainly possible. I'm looking at the governor's uh, budget document, and they welcome discussion with the legislature and potential near and long term solutions. So, you know, this is not, uh, I think, a closed door in the way that I would say tax increases are, mm-hmm. with the governor's clearly taking it off the table. Um, but I-, I think Chris makes a fair point as well, which is that there's some real regional variation here in terms of legislators' wants and needs. You know, State Senator Scott Weiner, uh, as you noted, Marisa, who represents San Francisco, BART is a huge issue in his district for people who are commuting, less so for some members in uh, sprawlier, more car-centric parts of the yeah. state. And then a final Although We note. should
3: say the population centers, and therefore, Certainly. biggest number of representatives Certainly. are from Certainly. metro areas. Yeah,
5: I would also just note that you know, to the extent that as we discussed, uh, climate funding takes a hit here, a lot of folks including advocates for transit, would tell you that public transit is a climate issue. It's getting people out of cars, reducing vehicle miles traveled. And so certainly this is a thing where there is some real alarm, especially post-pandemic, with some federal money evaporating about the long-term prospects of systems like BART.
3: Well, and it's connected to all these other challenges that we're facing, right? I mean, one of the items in the Oakland um, teacher strike negotiation was giving kids bus passes so that they have access to transit. And then we talk about you know downtown bounce back or not in in a lot of cases um you know, these are the systems that bring people to downtowns and to, you know, so it's like, it's all interconnected, ultimately. Yes. And obviously, the
5: governor's budget can't force um, downtown headquartered companies to bring workers back to the office, you know. He's so working on that, I'm sure. Now. Things out of his control. <laughs> but uh, certainly, there's a lot of appetite to help out these reeling systems.
3: Absolutely. That's Jeremy White. He covers California politics for Politico, co-writes The Playbook. And Chris Haney is with us, executive director of California Budget and Policy Center. Earlier, we were joined by Julie Rentner of River Partners. We're talking about Governor Gavin Newsom's May revision of its proposed budget. It was unveiled Friday, and now it's in the legislature's hands. And we want to hear from you. Do you have thoughts about how California should address its $32 billion deficit? Do you think the governor is making the right call that he's declining to raise taxes or dip into rainy day funds to address the shortfall? Do you agree with his approach of cutting spending? Do you have any questions for us? Email us at forum at kqed.org. Give us a call 866-733-6786. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim today we are talking about California's proposed budget for the fiscal year that begins July 1st. We have a estimated $32 billion deficit this year. That's coming after last year. It was a $97 billion surplus. Uh, with us is Jeremy White of Politico, Chris Haney of the California Budget and Policy Center. And Chris, I want to ask you about another uh, policy area that has been uh, just friend of mine, not just for the governor, but one of his big issues, but I think the state in general, which is homelessness and housing. Um, you know, he has made some very big promises about spurring housing development, about tackling the very visible homelessness issues. What is he doing in this budget around that? Is he continuing existing investments? Are there any pullbacks? Like, what do you see big picture?
6: He's mostly continuing investments that were made in the last couple of years. So they were much like in the climate change and infrastructure space, The way that the governor and the legislature allocated funding to address homelessness and for affordable housing was to make big one-time investments when there were surplus years. And he's basically saying, look, we're protecting those from cuts or pullbacks now that we're in a deficit period. I think where advocates are feeling disappointed about the budget is that there are ongoing needs in the homelessness arena. There are certainly ongoing needs in the affordable housing space. And these have been largely underfunded areas of the state budget for years and years. And so I think advocates were, you know, because of the crisis the state faces where low and middle income people are having a much harder time making ends meet. The migration data showed that those are the folks we're losing in the largest numbers to movement out of state, that there should be more ongoing investment made in combating homelessness, in the supplying affordable housing, preserving affordable housing, helping people afford housing that's here. So there's some pretty pretty noted disappointment among the folks who are trying to make change happen in those spaces.
3: Yeah. I, I mean, Jeremy, the governor's administration has also been pretty aggressive in filing lawsuits or you know warnings for cities that they don't feel like, or, well, I don't know, I don't think it's a feeling, that aren't meeting <laughs> their... excuse me, stated housing goals. Uh, (coughs) Huntington Beach has been in target. He mentioned Elk Grove last week. Do you think we'll see more of those types of legal actions potentially?
5: It certainly is clear that uh, the governor under Governor Newsom, uh, the State Department uh, overseeing housing issues has been more aggressive, as has the attorney general's office, which is separately elected, but I think on the same page as the governor, about you know, using legal mechanisms to force these uh, cities and counties to build more. Back in January, the governor talked about how he also wanted more accountability around money being given to locals to address homelessness, move folks out of encampments. He said something to the effect of, I, I don't want us to give one more dollar unless we see that something's going to change. We haven't really seen much movement in terms of the governor embracing a legislative proposal on that, but uh, it's something that he has emphasized as a through line of of sort of forcing locals to do a better job of both planning for housing and uh, moving homeless folks out of encampments.
3: Awesome. Well, I want to bring in one of our callers. Rob is on from San Francisco. Rob, go ahead.
2: Thank you. Um, This is just an anecdotal story that I've heard over and over and over again from people that talk about a particular department's budget, whether it's in the city or whether it's statewide, is that Towards the end of the year, if there's any money left in that particular department's budget, they go out of their way to try to spend it. Mm. And it may not be necessary to spend it. They just want to spend it because it guarantees that they get the same amount of funding next year. And why isn't there ever an incentive to maybe donate that money back to the general fund or, or something where they won't get penalized in the next year's budget by having their budget cut if they don't spend it all? but just a way to kind of vacuum up all this extra spending that goes on that's maybe not necessary, but that you know removes the incentive to spend money that yeah. is, doesn't need to be spent, I guess is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah,
3: no, great question, Rob. Thanks for the call. I mean, Chris Haney, this is, I mean, I think probably true in a lot of organizations. You don't want to give money back. You've been budgeted. But there's also just other structural pressures on the budget, right? I mean, every year costs go up around, you know, the biggest cost we have which is bodies what do you think about rob's comment and then in general just like why there's always this upward pressure
6: yeah you know i would say that the governor actually is trying to the caller said vacuum up he the governor used the word sweep up um some unspent funding um in various parts of the budget so places where money was allocated uh for example there was money allocated for middle class tax refunds that were given out last year. Not all of that funding was used. The governor's sweeping some of that back up and saying we're gonna use that to help cover the, in part the deficit. So they are trying to do some of that. Um, yeah, I think there, I think the other place to understand the kind of push factors that come back in the other direction are it's a big state with a large population. Uh, a lot of the programs and services that are provided are based on the number of people who need them. And so when we go into periods of economic downturn, there tend to be more people who are in need of various kinds of support. And then the number of folks in various state programs then increase and the costs go up right at the time that the revenues are going down. And so there's a lot in this budget that's also talking about like, what are the inflationary factors, what's happening with caseloads and the number of people eligible. And they're having to account for that first, just to sort of understand that if they do hold the line, where exactly you know are the spending needs, and and the, and the reality is that's what leads to the deficit, right? You add up all those spending needs, you look at the revenue picture, which is down, and you say, okay, right now, unless we make some other decisions, we're facing a deficit, and and those other decisions are what are now on the table and have to get resolved in the next couple of weeks.
3: Yeah. Well, one listener tweets, why should the government be spending anything on climate change when renewables cost less than fossil fuels? Let the free market do that work. This is exactly what capitalism is for. Jeremy, the governor and Democratic lawmakers have felt, I think, the need to weigh in on the free market on this one. Um, we talked about you know, the huge amount of spending that was approved last year, but part of the Pulling back of that, that the governor's proposing is a $1.1 billion climate bond. What do we know about that and when voters would weigh in?
5: I would note uh, $1.1 billion is the amount of funding that the governor is cutting away from some programs that he said Mm. could potentially be covered by a climate bond. We don't actually know the amount that that bond would... uh, uh, constitute because Total we don't memory, really yeah. have a climate bond yet. This is an idea that sort of kicked around the legislature. The governor said, OK, we're going to get together and put it before voters. I would note a couple things. The governor also wants to put a bond before voters to pay for um, sort of behavioral health housing. And both of those bonds would require uh, a two thirds vote in the legislature and then voters to pass mm-hmm. them. Voters rejected the last statewide bond that went before them, which the governor backed to build um More educational facilities or to renovate educational facilities. So I don't think it's a slam dunk that the voters would approve that even if it gets on the ballot. So in saying we're going to cover some of these programs with bond spending, the governor is really – there's a couple things that have to happen for that to become reality
3: to go back to our all cliches, cliche kicking the can a little bit perhaps. Chris, what do you think? Are are these uh, and talk about maybe a little bit about the other proposed housing bond um as well and and just where you see them kind of fitting into all this.
6: Yeah, yes, yeah. so there is another proposed bond uh, to put funding into a housing bond. This there's a current housing bond that is going to run out of funding later this year. So folks in the affordable housing world are hoping that a a new housing bond can be put in place, new funding can be put there to help with um, the work, to continue the work that's been happening. Generally speaking, I think the strategy of bonding, particularly if it's for things like housing and infrastructure and climate change makes sense. These are investments that uh, roll out over many years and they pay off over many years. So bonding, where you pay for the costs of financing those investments over many years aligns Um, And makes good good budget sense. As Jeremy said, I think the issue is, you know, it's hard to claim that you're just shifting a billion dollars here or a billion dollars there and it's going to be moved over to a bond when it takes a two-thirds vote of the legislature and then approval by California voters. And and if that doesn't happen, it means that that billion-dollar shift or those billion-dollar shifts become cuts.
3: So I'm curious, like, if these... Do get crafted, and do we know like when they would get put before voters? Either of you,
5: I think twenty twenty four would presumably okay. be the goal. So uh, none of this is
3: happening in the fiscal year that we're talking about. Actually,
5: the deadline for putting stuff on the ballot is not until next year. So if we're talking about um, if we're talking about putting something before voters, we're looking at November twenty twenty four.
3: All right. Well, one listener writes, does California have some unique revenue opportunities with our giant economy? For example, taxes on outside profits for petroleum companies or special assessments on crypto? Uh, there's a political angle to that. Jeremy could talk. But first, Chris, Haney, what do you think? I mean, uh, ha- are there things we haven't thought of yet?
6: There are there are things that we haven't thought of yet. There's certainly people out there that are talking about crypto and, you know, data transfer taxes and things, you know, things that represent kind of where there's been growth in the economy that we didn't used to have. But those things are a long way away from being structurally able to be put in place. Um, And so, you know, if you want to talk about revenues in the near term, the, the conversation should really be, where is there inefficiency in the system that we have now? And, you know, in our income tax system, we ask wealthier people, wealthier households to pay a larger share of a larger percentage of their income than we do low-income folks because we want a progressive tax structure. In the corporate space, we have a flat rate. We ask everybody to pay the same, whether you're a small business struggling to get by or whether you're a multinational, gigantic corporation making windfall profits year in, year out. And the inefficiency there is that there are marginal increase in raising and producing a more progressive corporate tax structure Mm -hmm. could produce revenues that would then be used for programs and services that would actually help Californians who are actually struggling to get by in the state, which is not the case for most of our, our state's largest corporations.
3: Yeah, I mean, but then Jeremy, you're raising taxes. Look, <laughs> politically, never... right? I mean, there is... <laughs> in,
5: in in progressive California, there is never any shortage of ideas for new sources of revenue by by asking various uh, folks to pay more we've seen uh proposals for an oil severance tax come up and fail over and over and over again. Uh, your listeners probably remember there was some interest in legalizing sports betting and and getting some revenue from that last cycle voters rejected that. That's one. coming back though. We I'm will be sure voting on that, that again. one will <laughs> be coming back. Um you know, there's uh, there's always fresh ideas for for new industries or, or sources of revenue that we might get. But anytime you try to do something like that, it's it's a political struggle with the group that is going to be paying more. Um, I mean there's a bill in the legislature right now that would assess a fee on companies like Airbnb to, to fund housing. There's there's always ideas like that floating yeah. around. I think the governor has made clear he's not interested in that this cycle and that is just another major political battle you are adding to the agenda if you embrace something like that at a time when he's already negotiating with the legislature over all these other um, topics. So. Absolutely.
3: We're talking about Governor Gavin Newsom's May revision of his proposed budget. It was unveiled on Friday. It's now in the legislature's hands to amend and approve. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and for Mina Kim. All right, well, Jeremy, you brought up the politics of this, and I, I can't help myself. We're both political reporters, right? So it's not just the politics of dealing with the legislature. It's also what we're all watching, which is newsom's bigger ambitions on a national stage whenever that may be um do you think that that has something to do with why he really wants to hold the line on taxes does he not want to head into whatever his campaign could be in the future with that you know for republicans to hang around his neck
5: i think if you ask the governor he would tell you it's just good fiscal sense he's not
3: thinking about he's not thinking
5: about he has sub-zero interest however I do think that there is some appeal if you are a Democrat with national ambitions in being able to say you are the Democrat who funded climate programs to the tune of forty-eight billion dollars without raising taxes, or whatever program you want to point to. And so, certainly, this governor will never admit to his fairly evident political ambitions. At the same time, I think it's just it's 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 kind of a no-brainer that um, to the extent he could sort of um, belie that stereotype of the California governor, the liberal who will raise taxes on everyone. There's some political upside in that.
3: Yeah. And I mean, 2024, there will be implications in California beyond Newsom. Uh, Chris Haney, I'm curious about the kind of bigger economic picture that we're watching here. There's a lot of uncertainty, right? The debt ceiling fight, wherever that's going to go in D.C. Inflation is still a beast. Uh, We've been sort of talking about a potential recession. There's this Silicon Valley slump layoffs there, a lot of uncertainty around banks. We've seen several fail. Like, given all of that, how should the state be kind of thinking about the unknowns ahead when when they're framing this budget?
6: Yeah, I think, you know, the reality is there are a lot of uncertainties and the governor really stressed that Um, those uncertainties are led by the debt ceiling conversation and whether, you know, global instability could happen that would affect California's revenue picture even more. The governor talked a lot about that uh, in his press conference. But I would note the governor's own economic projections that are actually in the budget proposal say that otherwise they don't think the state's headed toward a recession. They're saying that, well, maybe some of these uncertainties could result in a recession being around the corner. And so it's, you know, there's a little irony in how it's being, you know, it's being publicly talked about as if it's right there looming. And on the other hand, they're actually budgeting... Differently than that, and then saying, "Yeah, well, this is why we don't want to touch the reserves, uh, and and it's not the right time to raise taxes." But they're not also projecting a recession at current. So it's sort of you know it's like it's it's here again. It's sort of the politics versus the policy. The politics of it is that it's really effective from a budget negotiation tactic to raise the uncertainties. But even the governor's own projections basically say the state is not on too bad of a track. They think that enough underlying economic indicators are pretty solid and that if those hold, we'll be returning to growth periods by the end of the year.
3: Oh, the whiplash. We started with it, one with it. Jeremy, I'm wondering, another question the governor and a lot of lawmakers keep getting is around reparations. You know, we have this task force that was created um, by a law signed by the governor a few years ago. They are, you know, finishing up their recommendations, which could include um, you know a, a number of things including cash payments but that seems to be the one everyone wants to talk about how's the governor responding when he's pushed on this like do you have any sense of where he's at
5: the governor is uh, really studiously not taking a position on this his initial statement that uh, reparations is more than cash payments while certainly true reparations encompasses more than that though that's the most um, sort of uh, buzzy part of it right. um, I think woke a lot of people up to the reality that uh, whether or not this ever gets to the governor's desk, which I think is doubtful, that doesn't mean he's necessarily going to embrace it. Um, Look... The idea of paying up to $1.2 million per person, which was the sort of maximum end that this task force recommended, was always going to be politically extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. The governor and legislative Democrats will say there are various other ways you could conceive of reparations uh, than cash payments. But I do think that's the one that, that really fires the public imagination and that is embraced as by a lot of advocates as one way that you could atone for the, the sins of slavery in the way it's ramified down the generations. So the governor uh, signed that commission into law with a lot of fanfare. This was at a time when there uh, uh, the whole nation was sort of having a conversation about racial injustice with, with the killings of, of black men by police. And so... Now we get into the reality of making those recommendations into something concrete. And I think we're seeing that politically it's it's a lot more challenging than just coming up with recommendations.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think we are going to have to leave it there. We should say, you know, if you have opinions about what we've been talking about, call your lawmaker. This is the uh, crunch time up in Sacramento. They'll be debating this in open committee and behind closed doors in the coming weeks. I have been talking with Jeremy White. He covers California politics for Politico, co-writes The Playbook. Thanks for being here, Jeremy.
5: Always a pleasure.
3: And Chris Haney, Executive Director of the California Budget and Policy Center. Chris, always happy to have your insights. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Marissa. And earlier, we were joined by Julie Rentner. She's president of River Partners, a nonprofit that works to restore healthy watersheds in the Central Valley and Southern California. I'm Marissa Lagos in for Kim. My colleague and partner in crime, Scott, will be here tomorrow. Tune in.